0: Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're, as you're turning there, allow me just to uh, give Nathan and Rachel a, a personal welcome. Uh, you should know, and Nathan should know, uh, he was here before I was here. And he is one of the reasons I'm still here. Nathan, your joyful love for serving God in ministry gave me more and more of a desire to do the same. And I think we often see, whether it be those in Christian leadership, or missionaries, we can tend to look and think, boy, I would never want to do that. I look at Nathan, and I think, boy, that looks like a pretty good line of work and ministry, and just his, his sincere joy in what he does is not to be underestimated. And I want you to know that's really encouraged me in my work in the, for the Lord, Nathan. So we praise the Lord, I know. But uh, yes, if if today is your uh, first time with us, we are studying our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, and uh, we're currently in chapters 8 and 9, doing a two-week study on biblical generosity. We looked at chapter 8 last week and 20 brief lessons on this topic, 20 lessons that give us a a healthy, a wonderful big-picture view of generosity as God would have it in the church. And today we're going to cover chapter 9. If you're taking notes, we're going to work in an outline fashion right on through the chapter. And we're going, to, we're going to look at 10 truths Paul gives us to further teach us what generosity and the joy of giving look like when God's grace gets involved. So as we noted last week, how appropriate that this topic would land here at the Christmas season, this season of giving, this season of thanks. So follow along as I read through chapter 9. Paul says, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. Namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren, in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case. So that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, So that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for the wonder of Your indescribable Word. Right away we see there is so much truth here, so much good truth to be applied to our way of thinking, to even more to be applied to our heart and the way we live this life. Lord, you have been so good to us. Give us wisdom and joy in sharing your goodness with others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's walk now through 10 wonderful truths about biblical generosity. We'll simply note some of the points while we'll dwell longer on others. So beginning in verse 1, we see point number 1. This is what we could call the circular inspiration of generosity. Verse 1 and 2 say, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. That's Paul saying, you already know what I'm talking about. I'm repeating myself unnecessarily here. I'm preaching to the choir. Verse 2, he says, For I know your readiness. And get this now. He says, Of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. Namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. If you were with us last week, you saw in chapter 8 that Paul was using the example of the Macedonians to spur and inspire the Corinthians to a similar generosity. And here in chapter 9, we see this unexpected turning of the tables. And Paul says he's boasting about Achaia, which includes the city of Corinth and the church at Corinth. He's boasting about them to the Macedonians. And he says that it was the zeal of the Corinthians that stirred up most of the churches in Macedonia. This is such an interesting turn of events here. This is the wonderful circular inspiration of generosity. When one is inspired, we're all inspired because we're all in this together. Wouldn't you like to be a part of a church family like this, a network like this? Personally, I believe we are, and I praise God for that. I see God doing this circular inspiration in our church family. This is the way it's supposed to be and even more. Point number two. Here we find the urgent necessity of accountability and preparation. Verses three to five. And we see here that Paul's got a very good thing going and he doesn't want to lose it. Verse three. He says, but I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. This is nothing less than down-to-earth practical wisdom being employed here. The Corinthians, as we see, had made a promise a year ago to give generously to this cause that Paul was supporting. The needy saints in Jerusalem, they were so destitute that Paul felt the need to go throughout uh, the Aegean Sea area and gather funds to take back to the church. This was a severe need we're looking at. And the Corinthians, as we see, had made a promise prior to be a part of this endeavor, a generous part of this endeavor. Which highlights, this is a very important point because if you listen to discussions on this, this often comes up. This highlights that Paul wasn't trying to coerce them into something they didn't want to do. He wasn't peddling anything. He wasn't laying guilt trips. This is a promise they had made already. And Paul in his practical wisdom and realization that even Christians are tempted, even Christians can be affected by covetousness, and it brings shame to their witness. So we see that Paul sends a delegation ahead to make sure they were prepared to follow through on their promise. That is the scenario, and it's very important to keep that in mind. This is tied to point number three. Avoid the shameful danger of covetousness. Verse 5 continues, so that, there's those key words again, here is the reason that everything stated prior is happening, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Thayer's Bible Dictionary simply defines that word this way, the greedy desire to have more. And I have to think that Thayer's biblical definition was so short because That's exactly what it is. We need little understanding here. The greedy desire to have more. For us as Christians in particular, that would be the desire to have more than God allows. And thinking back to point number two, in the first part of verse five, Paul knows that accountability and preparation, intentionality, et cetera, help protect us from broken promises that are driven by the desire to have more. Without understanding, Paul now shifts to his next focus. Point number four, the law of the spiritual harvest. Verse six says, Now this I say, that's Paul stepping into teacher mode, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. How many of you have heard that verse before? Raise your hand nice and high. More than half of you at least three-quarters of you. It is mind-boggling to see how poorly this verse is interpreted and abused. We have all heard things like, do you want to get that pay raise? That bigger and better, you name it. Are you dreaming big enough for yourself and for your family? Here's the secret. Give more and you will receive more. We see the promise right here in the verse. Unquote. Here's where you insert SMH in your text. Here's the first online definition I came, of, came across for SMH. Acronym for shaking my head, or shake my head. Usually used when someone finds something so stupid, no words can do it justice. Give more and you will get more. Friends, that kind of shameful interpretation and presentation of scripture is a perfect example of the importance of context. What did Paul just say at the end of the prior verse? No coveting. And then religious leaders worldwide immediately turn and appeal to covetousness to pressure people into bigger offerings. May you never see that happen in this place. If you do, you and I have responsibility to call it out for what it is. Paul was no dummy. He knew that verse 5, no coveting, had to precede the law of the spiritual harvest. In verse 6, sow bountifully and you will reap bountifully. Now, he also knew that he was going to have to very clearly define the bounty. We'll get to that in verse 8, but first, Point number five, here we find the doing of biblical generosity. Verse seven, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There are three very quick lessons we find here. First, that this is a heart matter versus a law matter. Secondly, this is an attitude matter. There's no negative sentiment to be applied here, no pre-regret, no hesitation. We see from the not under compulsion phrase, there is not to be a sense of guilt when we give. There's not to be a sense of fear. the third point we see very quickly from the phrase, God loves a cheerful giver, that there is a sure blessing that comes with this in some unique way. Think about this. Cheerful giving, as described all throughout these two chapters, brings down the favor of God upon the giver. If for no other reason, and there are many wonderful reasons to give with biblical generosity, but if for no other reason the unique love and favor of God should be incentive enough to share of all that God has so graciously provided us. Point number six, here we see generosity, excuse me, here we see generous giving empowered. You know, this whole book is focusing on real power. It's the title of our study, Finding Real Power. And here we see another angle on it in verse eight, and God is able. Let's stop right there for a moment. God is able. If we miss those words, we miss the entire chapter and chapter 8. Paul kicked off this whole generosity discussion in chapter 8, verse 1, with these words, Brethren, we we, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches. That's what Paul wanted to talk about. That's what Paul wanted to elevate and bring their attention to. And here he says again, and God is able. This reminds us of what we studied in recent chapters. We are ambassadors. We are channels. Channels of blessing. Of God's gracious and generous blessing to us. This reminds me of the old hymn, Channels Only. How I praise Thee, precious Savior that thy love laid hold on me. Thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I might thy channel be. Paul continues in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance For every dream you've ever had, every wish you've ever made, every thing you've ever wanted. Is that what it says? Far from it. This is a pivotal point in the text. That you may have an abundance for every what? Good deed. We find here a beautiful and pure principle. We give so we can give more these verses are teaching us that god's always all-sufficient in all things providential grace both his physical and spiritual provision and is adequately meeting our every need and blessing us with the freedom and the joy of contentment that's the all-sufficiency so much more could be said there But we learn here that God's wonderful provision isn't just for us. It is for those around us. God's abundance isn't just for us. It's for those around us. And the target is every good deed. Let those three words sink deeply upon our hearts and minds. We are looking in this text At the divine power to give generously to those around us who are genuinely in need. And we discussed that important factor last week. The whole context of this discussion is based on genuine and severe needs. And again, as we saw last week, we don't give based on what we don't have. Paul's very realistic here. We give based on what we do have. And at times, we give very sacrificially. As we walk through this text... We see that these lessons, these brief lessons, Paul is saying so much in so few words. These brief lessons are painting a beautiful portrait of the rich person whose wealth is not defined by quantity, by how much they have in the bank, by how much they own, etc., but by how graciously and cheerfully they share of what God has provided. That's the kind of rich person we should long to be. That's the kind of rich person we should be most inspired by and seek to emulate. How interesting that this kind of truly rich person could easily be one of the poorest in this church. It's not the amount. It's the God-honoring generosity that counts. Point number seven. Here the spiritual harvest is defined Verse 9 says, as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. This is again why we have to study in context. We find that these words come from Psalm 119, and the psalmist is not talking about God who scatters and gives to the poor and his righteousness endures forever. The beginning of this psalm clearly points out that the psalmist is talking about the person who fears the Lord and delights in His commandments. And then the writer goes on to define the lifestyle of that individual. Such a person, one who fears the Lord and delights in His commandments, also scatters abroad, gives to the poor, and what is the result? Their righteousness endures forever. the fruit of their labors, the fruit of their giving bears eternal consequence. Paul references this same idea in his letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 19, he says this, Instruct those who are rich in, in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. I love how the fact Paul can speak to those of us who have been given much. He can speak to us out of care for us. We often think that a word like this, is Paul is trying to extract wealth from the rich to give to the poor or something. No, Paul is also very much so safeguarding those of us, which would probably include every single person in this room when we think globally. Those who have been entrusted much, Paul is looking out for their own welfare. He says, be careful not to put your hope on the uncertainty of what God has provided. He goes on to say, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Those are spectacular truth values. Again, in so few words. The principle is this. We have been given the opportunity to be generous and to share and to be rich in good works, which is an investment of the things of this world into the things of eternal life. True life, as Paul calls it life indeed. The principle is this, spend the temporal now so you can bear fruit in the eternal later. What an incredible opportunity. One which we will only fully grasp when we see the dividends in heaven. We give, we invest now in faith. Verse 10 continues this definition of the spiritual harvest as well as our prior point on where the power comes from. Verse 10 Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that would be God, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. From start to finish, from seed to harvest. And even to the bread for food that comes from the harvest. We see that God supplies and God gives the increase. This is a God thing. This is a miracle that happens upon the earth. And we are blessed to be a part of it. Look at where Paul takes this. Point number eight. Biblical generosity super magnifies God. Verse 11. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints. When we give, we remember it's not just about the individual who received a blessing, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God because of the proof given by this ministry. Again, recall from last week, Paul in chapter 8, hammering home the importance of proving our faith and our love through what we do. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. When, by the grace of God, biblical generosity happens, God is glorified and many hearts turn in thanksgiving to him. Oftentimes we find ourselves, if you're like me, reflecting on what does it mean to glorify God? We, we use that phrase so freely. We refer to it so often, but, but what, what does that actually look like? How does one glorify God? Well, if we look carefully in the pages of Scripture, we see instructions and hints given all throughout on what it looks like to glorify God Almighty. And one of those ways is through generosity. Isn't it worth noting that verse 13 teaches that that generosity is an obedience and a confession of the gospel of Christ issue. It is not primarily a giving issue. It is not primarily a confession of the promise you made a year ago issue. That's not the heart of what Paul was after, and we learn from this. Generosity is about obedience to God and the depth and truth of our own personal faith, our faith in Christ, the gospel of Christ. We see that Paul is amping up the importance of this matter. He's pulling us back to the big picture that drives this entire topic. And briefly now, in verse 14, Paul looks back to the beginning point on circular inspiration. I love each time I come across this. Point number nine, the circular inspiration of generosity continues. Verse 14, now we're bringing in the saints at Jerusalem. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. This is where it's so important for us to study all of the scriptures so that we see the broader historical context of what's taking place. What was one of the great struggles of the Jews in the beginning years of the church? They didn't yearn for the Gentiles. They felt that they were a spiritual class above. They were not eager to share the Messiah with the non-Jews. It's so important for us to see this this historical context of what Paul's talking about here when we read a verse like verse 14. They also, the saints in Jerusalem, the Jews did not yearn for the Gentiles. And that's an understatement. Paul's Paul's point here is to highlight the healing power, the restoring power, the uniting power that happens, the racial divide that is erased when biblical generosity is employed toward those in genuine need. This whole picture of generosity and giving is way bigger than we imagine. The ripple effect goes so far for the cause of Christ. And we see here next that Paul has saved the best for last. Verse 15, here's where we find the crown jewel of these entire two chapters on biblical generosity. Point number 10, the crown jewel of generosity comes in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that gift is in bucks. That gift isn't the offering that we give. That gift isn't the collection taken up for the saints in Jerusalem. That's a describable gift. The supreme indescribable gift is the gift of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. You know this. We learn from these two chapters that we give generously as we are able and sometimes even beyond our ability because God has given so generously to us. Generosity is an attribute that glorifies God. It defines Him. We celebrate Christmas because God lovingly and most generously gave His invaluable and indescribable gift to us, God the Son, the great shepherd who who willingly laid down His own life for His sheep. And notice this wonderful lesson in verse 15. At the end of the day, when finances are tight and we struggle to even meet our own basic needs at times, we don't sing the praises of the brother or sister who generously shares with us out of what God has provided for them. We go much higher than that. We cry out in overflowing and many thanksgivings to God for His indescribable gift. Think about this. All fingers point to God in this situation of generosity. All eyes turn to Him, and salvation becomes the crown jewel of the day. Even in biblical generosity, we cry out, He must increase, and we must decrease. When I give generously to someone else, it is not about me. When you give generously to others, you are not the star of the show. You know what I'm saying here and this is this is a wonderful place to be. Our praise and our focus and our thanksgiving go so much higher. Salvation becomes the crown jewel of the situation. Even in biblical generosity, we find that all eyes go to God. The thanks goes ultimately, primarily, supremely to our wonderful Heavenly Father because even our motivation to give is just a small reflection of His indescribable gift to us. Is it any wonder that Paul said to the church of Corinth back in his first letter to them, we preach Christ crucified. That was the theme of His letters, the theme of His mission, the theme of His message. For Paul, it was all about the whole message of the cross, the indescribable gift, the immeasurable and most generous love of God that has so freely been showered upon us. Verse 18 of that chapter, chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. God. We see again a tremendous theological truth in salvation and in the cross. And that is that the cross is is not just a power to salvation, the power to eternal life. It is the power to give biblically and generously as well. And so much more. It's the power for daily sanctification, it's the power to repent. It's the power to love. It's the power that continues daily to work its effect in the life of the believer. Not just for the eternal, but for the temporal. Day after day in every area of life. This is the overwhelming and limitless miracle of God's saving and sanctifying grace in our lives. Show me a church family that is basking in the wonder of God's free and marvelous salvation. And I will show you a church who cheerfully and generously gives to the needs that God so lays upon their hearts. This is truly just one of the great privileges we have of being a follower of Christ. Channels of blessing. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. I'm going to ask our men if they would come and prepare to serve communion at this time. Is there coming? Let me read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 11. Beginning in verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Can you hear him saying, can you hear the Father saying, This is is my generous gift. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Can you hear the Father and the Son saying, this is the generous covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Aren't you glad those last few words were tagged on there? We don't just proclaim the death of Christ in this season of remembrance. We proclaim it until he comes. That is part of the proclamation. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread And drink of the cup. We all know that this is a time of personal examination. In the context of our study today, it's a time for us all to shed a little more of covetousness and embrace tighter God's own beautiful example of generosity, loving generosity. And why would we want to do that? Because of His indescribable gift. If you've received God's gift of forgiveness and salvation, then I invite you to partake in in this communion. This is the believer's opportunity to remember, to savor, to cherish, to be inspired and guided by what Christ has done for them. And if you aren't a Christian, I invite you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. What holds you back? In the clearest of terms, Romans chapter 10 says this, the words of the Apostle Paul, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be rescued by God from the penalty of sin, from hell, from the eternal punishment and condemnation of sin. He goes on to say, for with the heart a person believes, not just with the mind, but with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Who does God offer this to? For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the promise of God. If you've never turned your heart toward God and believed and asked God to be your Savior, to forgive you of sin, to give you the hope, the sure hope, hope of eternal life, then won't you believe in Him today? Christmas season is a wonderful time of year to do that. If you have questions, please ask me or another here. In the truest sense, this salvation is what Christmas is all about. And so we remember Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we spend these few moments now contemplating your indescribable, most generous gift, Lord, our hearts are overwhelmed and we just give thanksgiving. Lord, You so freely gave what we could never earn. You loved first before we loved You. And it's because of what Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection and in the promise, the giving of the Holy Spirit, Lord, it's in all of these things that we find the grace-inspired desire to be generous, to be biblically generous, to be generous in such a way that it glorifies God and causes many to overflow in thanksgiving to Him, not to us, to Him. That's our heart's prayer. Thank you, Lord, for what you did through Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. Touch our hearts afresh now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.